Good morning. It's January 23rd. It's a cloudy morning in New York City, with rumors of some sort of flurries around somewhere. And this is your Indignity Morning Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Skoka, taking a look at the day and the news. It's New Hampshire primary day. All six Republican primary voters in Dixville Notch cast their publicity stunt ballots for Nikki Haley as the pageant of democracy began to unfold. The lead spot in the New York Times has two stories paired under a single headline. In New Hampshire sprint, Haley tries to stay in race. The right-hand story is about that sprint, narrating how Haley raced across New Hampshire on Monday to hustle for voters and dashed to half a dozen events in New Hampshire, while also describing how Donald Trump, with a minimal campaign schedule in New Hampshire, has, as the Times puts it, methodically drained the political life out of his rivals. The left-hand story offers more in that vein, describing how now that Ron DeSantis has dropped out and Nikki Haley has achieved the two-person race that she aimed for, everyone expects the result to be a crushing one-on-one defeat. One Republican activist backing Ms. Haley, the Times writes, said he kept his lawn sign in the garage because Mr. Trump's victory felt inevitable. Seems more like backing away from Ms. Haley than backing Ms. Haley, but the poor fellow has to keep living somehow, I guess. Elsewhere on page one, the news about Joe Biden's political prospects and the economy keeps evolving. We have now fully progressed from stories about how bad news about inflation and bad economic sentiment were bad for Biden, to stories about how good economic news was failing to translate into good economic sentiment, which was bad for Biden, to now a story about how good economic news is translating into good economic sentiment, but it still is bad for Biden. Americans, the Times writes, are feeling more confident about the economy than they have in years by some measures. They increasingly expect inflation to continue its descent. There might be a few too many ups and downs in that phrase to work through, but increasingly expect inflation to continue its descent, preliminary data indicates, and they think interest rates will soon moderate. But political scientists, consumer sentiment experts, and economists alike said it was too early for Democrats to take a victory lap around the latest economic data and confidence figures. Maybe someday, when they've exhausted every other analytic permutation available, good economic news will be good news for Biden. But right now, it's too soon to make that commitment. On page A8, under the War in the Middle East header, there's a story about how U.S. and British forces continue attacking the Houthis, accompanied by a news analysis piece at the bottom of the page about the fears in the Biden administration that the ongoing war in the Middle East could become a war in the Middle East. As American forces keep trading military assaults, with various forces scattered around the region, in what the Times describes as a regular string of relatively low-level assaults. Biden administration officials, the Times writes, have regularly debated the proper strategy. They do not want to let such attacks go without a response, but on the other hand, do not want to go so far that the conflict would escalate into a full-fledged war, particularly by striking Iran directly. They privately say they may have no choice, however, if American troops are killed. That is a red line that has not been crossed, But if the Iranian-backed militias ever have a day of better aim or better luck, it easily could be. What does it even mean to try to have a red-line concept when the underlying question is a roll of the dice? The whole idea of setting a red line is supposed to be that you're forbidding someone from taking a particular action. But here, the supposed red line is just about the outcome of an action. It seems doomed and incoherent to have the administration's position be that the various militias can keep on trying to kill American forces as long as they don't succeed at it. On page A19, there are two stories about higher education. One story is about what the Times describes as the largest university faculty strike in U.S. history, in which professors and lecturers across the entire Cal State system walked off the job. 
The California Faculty Association, The Times writes, which represents 29,000 professors, lecturers, librarians, counselors, and coaches, began a five-day strike that will affect nearly 460,000 students who attend the nation's largest four-year public university system. Walkouts began at all 23 CSU campuses. The other higher ed story is about two rich and powerful people griping about one of the people named to lead the task force on anti-Semitism at Harvard. You'll never guess which of those two stories is higher up on the page. Or will you? Once again, Anamona Hartikolis, the Times' Ivy League kerfuffle and elite campus culture war correspondent, demonstrates that she will type up literally anything that crackpot financier Bill Ackman complains about, and the Times will publish it. On this one, Ackman is joined by failed Harvard president Larry Summers, who concedes that there's nothing anti-Semitic about the person that he's protesting, but that his criticisms of Israel make him, in Summers' words, unsuited to leading a task force whose function is to combat what is seen by many as a serious anti-Semitism problem at Harvard. Larry Summers isn't saying anything's wrong with him. He's just saying other people might have problems with how they see it. Speaking of other people and their opinions, Articolis did get a quote from Jonathan Greenblatt, who took time off from sucking up to the world's most powerful anti-Semite Elon Musk to post something. The Times doesn't specify, but it was posted on Elon Musk's Nazi website about how not to combat anti-Semitism. It's sort of remarkable as the debate about the debate about anti-Semitism royals American institutions. The Times has Hartikolis and company banging away on the question of which university presidents might get hounded out of a job, while basically ignoring the alarm and resignations among people at the Anti-Defamation League over Greenblatt's willingness to sell out the most basic elements of what used to be their cause. Some embattled administrators are more embattled than others, apparently. That is the news. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Indignity to keep us going. And if all goes well, we will talk again tomorrow.